You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Earlier this year, Virgin Galactic announced it was teaming up with Under Armour for an out-of-this-world retail project, literally. This week, the Baltimore-based sportswear company unveiled the next generation of spacesuits. The suits and boots won't be available to the public in stores or online. They'll be worn by Virgin Galactic's future commercial space travel passengers. We caught up with Virgin Galactic co-founder Sir Richard Branson to hear more about them. Um, so, a couple of years ago, um, I met Kevin Plank from Under Armour, um, told him that we needed a spacesuit. Um, he was very excited. He got his whole team at Under Armour to start working on it. Um, and they've come up with a, the, the, exactly uh, what, what, we've, what we asked for. Um, and it actually, I think it, it, looks, it looks fantastic. It's incredibly comfortable. Um, and I think our future astronauts will be uh, delighted wearing it. They'll be able to float around in space without feeling constricted. Uh, they won't have a, um, a helmet on their head, which is quite claustrophobic. And they'll be able to look out of our beautiful windows and, and look back at the Earth and, and marvel. You're wearing it. You yourself are a future astronaut in the making, we understand. But how much did these astronauts that have, are hoping and waiting to go on to your own flight have involved in the design, in the R&D, to make sure that it's fit for purpose? I think it's very foolish to make anything for anybody unless you involve the people who are going to wear these things. So when you know, we launched Virgin Atlantic 35 years ago, we involved all our staff in you know, how far down they would like their dresses or their, you know, how, what, how they would like their trousers and so on. Um, and we did, we've done the same with our astronauts. We've, we've, um, I've got uh, 35 on NECA at the moment. Um, we get together quite regularly, um, and um, you know that we get feedback, and and um, and we party. <laughs> <laughs> well, the spacesuit looks amazing, and I'm sure it's comfortable as well. I want to go on a little bit to to find out how the test flights are going so far, because I believe you're currently carrying out these test flights. Give us a sense of the frequency of the test flights and how far they travel, and what you've learned so far from them. 
So we've had an incredible few months. Um, we're the only, only uh, space company in America, including NASA, to put people into space uh, um, since 2009. And we put five, uh, we've made five new astronauts. Um, and so now what they're doing is just filter, fitting, filter, sorry, fitting out the interior of the spaceship for passenger use, moving uh, the mothership and the spaceship to our lovely spaceport in New Mexico. Um, we'll then do a few more test flights, uh, then next year I'll go up and then we'll start putting people up. And so we've got, we've got, we've got an exciting few months ahead. So 2020 remains the date for you and for the 35 who are currently partying and wearing your astronaut outfits on Necker Island, they could be by 2020 as well? Will that start to be when these people who have been waiting can get on? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so it's a big year for me. I'm going to be 70, so I've, I've told the team to hurry up and they promise to, <laughs> <laughs> promise to deliver it. Um, it's also the 50th anniversary of, um, of Virgin next year, so uh, it's going to be an exciting big year. And, um, and, and, you know, I think at the end of this month, we're going to be a public company, so yeah. we'll be the first space company where the public can invest in. Um, and institutions can invest in, um, and um, yeah, so it, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time for Virgin Galactic all around. It certainly is, and I want to get to that um, that public component a little bit uh, later on. But first of all, um, when will Virgin Galactic start to sell tickets once again for these space flights? Um, so we, we we've got a big wait list. We've got a three thousand yeah. people on the wait list, and we've, we're we're asking people to add their names to the wait list. Um, uh, so, we don't want we don't want to actually take people's um, money for the moment. Um, we've already got 600 fully paid up people, um, and we need to build a lot more spaceships. So the public float will enable us to ramp up the um, the building of spaceships, and mm. um, and you know that 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 will enable us to get through this long list of people who want to become astronauts. Congratulations on the public float news in terms of your merger with Social Capital. You have done with Hedda Sophia. It seems as though you can get an injection of cash, get public quicker than you anticipated. What You're also taking money. The likes of Boeing have said that they'll come in and buy shares when and as and when you are public. What would your relationship be with Boeing, for example? That, that news just broke this month. Um, we, we're doing three different things with Boeing. Uh, one I can talk about, the other two um, <laughs> we'll let you know about soon. Uh, go on. Uh, the, one I can talk about, it, it, <laughs> the one I can talk about is that our design teams are working together to look at whether we can create um, a plane that travels at five times the speed of sound that, um, that is environmentally as friendly as it can be. Um, and that is, is a lot, lot more cost effective than Concord used to be. And, um, and that's, a pro that's a project where, you know, you know, that's where um, the, some of the initial money that they are putting in will, will, be, will go, on, go into. And of course, we'll wait for the other two announcements, uh, the other two projects that you're working on uh, Boeing with. I, I know that you halted a uh, talks for $1 billion investment from Saudi Arabia last year following the murder of that um, Washington Post columnist. Are you in talks with uh, other funds, whether it's sovereign or private, or companies who invest in, take a stake in Virgin Galactic? Well. Uh, our other partner in Virgin Galactic uh, is Abu Dhabi. Um, they they um, they have 
uh, roughly 20% of the company, and they've been a fantastic partner for a number of years. Um, as you, as yeah, Saudi, we decided we shouldn't take the money because of what happened, um, and that's that's actually why why we've ended up come, going to the public markets. Hmm. We we turned down. The, the billion dollars from uh, the Saudis, and we're going to replace it or replace most of it with with um, public money. Bitcoin spent a lot of this week in the red, continuing the trend of a weak few months for the cryptocurrency. But that doesn't seem to be hampering investor demand for crypto assets. Grayscale Investments, the world's largest digital currency asset manager, with more than $2.2 billion in assets under management, posted a banner third quarter. Grayscale raised a record total $254.9 million, tripling their asset raise from the second quarter. We broke down the numbers with the managing director, Michael Sonnenschein, and started by asking him why the increasing interest from institutional investors hasn't translated into more robust prices. Well, I think what we're seeing is a solidification of the thesis around digital currencies. Our institutional investors, which now make up about 84% of the assets we raised over this past quarter, they're looking for uncorrelated alpha, right? They're looking for a new return stream. Right. And if they're a hedge fund or an endowment or a pension plan, you know, the typical two and 20 models that they have historically invested in, they're going to need to justify those fees mm. with other kinds of return streams that can help them achieve those target goals. And so I think investors are really looking to Bitcoin and other digital kind of stores of value yeah. as we shift away from maybe this physical world to what certainly right. is now a more, a more digital world. Who do you class as institutional investors? So institutions for us is going to span everybody from hedge funds, right? These are global macro funds, quant funds, tech funds, ARB funds. It's going to include registered investment advisors, uh, pensions and endowments. I mean, it really runs the entire gamut. I can say that I think the only type of institution we don't yet have as an investor um, would probably be a sovereign. Hmm. Interesting. I saw you had uh, on that chart that we just had up retirement accounts on a trailing 12-month basis. It was about 10%. And I'm just wondering, what type of uh, accounts are you talking about there? And what types of folks are you seeing move into that? A lot of investors have... Because when, I mean, when, when I ask the question just because sure. when I think of Bitcoin as an investment, I guess I think of it more as a short-term investment, and I'm wondering how it fits how into a long-term... Yeah, I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. No, but it's, yeah. you know, it's that our investors yeah. are folks that have a medium yeah. to long-term time horizon mm -hmm. for digital currency, right. Bitcoin or otherwise. And so at Grayscale, we now have this family of 10 unique investment products, right? These are all access products. And so if you want to gain exposure to Bitcoin or you want to you know, exposure to Ethereum um, or any other digital asset, we now have this whole suite of products where investors can express that view. And if you're an institution, the legal and operational framework around these assets and around these products fits along with what those, you know, investors do. And if you're an individual investor and you don't want to figure out buying digital currency directly, well, these options are available to you right now. So I think I follow the crypto space pretty closely. And I have never once heard of this currency called Zen. And you guys have a fund that allows people to invest in it. And I don't think Zen has performed particularly well. But the point aside is when you make this case about scarcity or telling people to drop gold, you have this drop gold campaign. Yep. Does it undermine that case that there is this scarcity if there is essentially a, an, an unlimited number of new products, new currencies that you'll just create any old fund for anytime? And I'm sure you have some 
benchmark and measurement to decide sure. when the currency is worth the fund. But I mean, what is this? We're pretty disciplined about this. There is a delicate balance. There is what are investors telling us they want access to, what areas of the market. And then it's our team doing deep dives and looking at different assets and saying, you know, is this a good opportunity for investors in structuring products around it? And I think that dovetails with the Drop Gold campaign, right? We started this earlier this summer, and the idea is it's a wake-up call for the investment community. It's a, is it time to drop gold? Is gold still the store of value for the world that we now live in, or is it time to start thinking about digital stores of value? And if you look at the attributes around Bitcoin or a lot of these other scarce digital assets, this is a narrative that is really starting to, you know, resonate with the investors. How much of a help or a hindrance or a frustration on your part are U.S. regulators, U.S. lawmakers when we hear rumors, reports that they're the ones who are lobbying certain members of the Libra coalition to not take part? We understand that it's potentially they're looking at Telegram and then suddenly saying, like, you can't be issuing your grams. You know, all these in these particular funds and indeed some of the uh, exchanges already set up counterparties to be able to make a market for gram. How how difficult is it? I actually wouldn't characterize it as difficult. I'd actually say that the regulatory attention that this asset class is getting is only adding increased validation. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what's going on with Libra and how much focus there is in D.C. around this, if you look at what other lawmakers are doing to really do a deep dive and understand the difference between Libra and other open source protocols like Bitcoin, you know, these are important conversations and that legacy institutional participation, be it Fidelity or even a tech giant like Facebook getting into the space, that is causing these conversations to happen now rather than down the road. And that's immensely, immensely helpful to the asset class as a whole. So building off of what Caroline was talking about, though, I mean, I saw the IRS uh, for the next tax season is going to have specifically have a question about your cryptocurrency assets and reporting that. And I see a bunch of state regulators are trying to sort of change the definition of money. So I guess they can sort of get a better handle on what's out there and who's either reporting or not reporting. Do you think that's going to scare away a certain, I guess, pocket of consumers here who are in Bitcoin or or not just Bitcoin, but in crypto as a whole? I don't think it should. I mean, we've had now, I guess, IRS guidance for at least uh, the last, you know, four or five uh, tax seasons, right, where investors have guidance from the IRS on how they're supposed to be reporting on crypto assets. And so while there's some new guidance out, I don't think that should shy, you know, cause people to shy away from the asset class. They're just going to hopefully continue to do their reporting every, every year like they always have. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Then Scarlett spoke with Shad Khan. He's been busy as the owner of both the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Fulham Football Club, as well as the CEO of Flex Engate. Now he's investing in a new project, J.C. Watts' new media venture, Black News Channel. Scarlett started by asking why he decided to get involved. Well, uh, Scarlett, uh, Black News Channel was in formation uh, for about eight years and went through you know, an evolution of becoming a reality. 
So by the time I kind of discovered it, a lot of the work's been done, and but it really had not become a reality to be on the air. So over the last couple of years, uh, you know, my goal was I think there's an unmet need uh, for African Americans to have a channel, and the founders of Black News Channel, uh, J.C. Watts primarily, and other people uh, have had this great vision. Uh, and it wasn't happening. So uh, I got involved not only financially, but getting uh, the fundamentals from the business side uh, to be able to get it on the air and really deliver a great product, uh, meet the needs of the African-American community, and then uh, get it to a point maybe in the future where it's sustainable. And I know that you've talked about how this is an open-ended commitment as well from you. How involved of an owner will you be? Will you be, for instance, uh, looking at content and making suggestions on content? Absolutely not, no. I have uh, really uh, nothing to do with the editorial uh, content. Uh, you know, there's a team in place uh, that will do that. My role is really limited to financial and the business side for them to get off the ground, uh, have a great launch, deliver content that's meeting the needs, and then eventually become sustainable in the future. All right, let's talk about one of your other businesses, which is the Jacksonville Jaguars, which you purchased in 2011. The NFL ownership structure as it currently stands makes it one of the most exclusive clubs. We know that franchise values are sky high, but it can be really hard to find qualified buyers. Do you think there should be changes made to the NFL ownership structure, the rules to that? Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, the NFL clubs, as you know, the 32 clubs, they're individually owned. And it's up to really the owners who own them to decide if they're going to sell, who to sell them to, or what price to sell them to. Now, uh, the league has really made some significant changes over the last year or so. They include like eliminating cross ownership requirements. Uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, increased the debt that could be put on acquisition. It's up to about a billion now. And uh, there are a number of other ways to make it possible to have a bigger pool of uh, potential buyers if a club goes, for sale, goes up for sale in the future. Does more need to be done? Does the NFL need to consider what the NBA is currently thinking about, creating an investment vehicle uh, that would allow smaller investors to buy minority stakes? Well, you know, that's been discussed, but I think right now uh, the sentiment is that uh, some of the rules are really foundation of NFL, which is sacred to have uh, at least 30% be owned by one individual and the rest uh, owned by partners, LPs, let's say. But, uh, you know, we're not to the point, I think, to say where, uh, you know, the funds will be invested in them or, uh, you know, something like that. We're not to that point. Got it. Okay, let's talk about the NFL's other partners, which, of course, is, uh, are its broadcast partners because the broadcast deals will be expiring in 2021 to 2022. What's your view on the league's OTT and media distribution strategy right now, which is spread out between the five major networks? Is it your expectation that... The Silicon Valley firms like Facebook, like Amazon, will get involved in the next contract? And if so, how? 
Well, uh, I think some of them are involved right now. I mean, um, you know, uh, Twitter a couple of years ago had content. Amazon uh, right now, uh, you know, is uh, online doing games. So, I mean, we have them engaged right now. This is a very evolving world, uh, how content is delivered, and obviously NFL has been right there at the leading edge, whether it's phones, mobile devices, or different forms of media. So, I think the basic tenant of uh, delivering free TV uh, in local markets still holds, but other than that, uh, you know, it'll change as technology changes. And of course, part of the reason why you want to make it so accessible is because of the global nature of your end market. What kind of appeal does professional American football have internationally? How important is, say, the China market? Well, uh, right now, uh, NFL, when it comes to international, I mean, our primary, primary focus obviously is London, Western Europe, Mexico, Canada. I mean, those are the primary markets right now we're focused on, I think. Uh, and then, you know, in the future, obviously, look at other opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I, as an owner in two sports, uh, the NFL and the Premiership, of course, you look at international appeal and it's something that you're measuring constantly. How do you size up global markets, Chad? Um, you brought the Jaguars to play in London, and of course the Premiership teams come to the U.S. How do you run uh, the risk-reward model for sports when it comes to overseas audiences? Well, uh, I think uh, it's in infancy, quite frankly, I mean, when you compare it to where it is in the U.S. But for the NFL, uh, you know, you look at the power of NFL in the U.S., it's pretty dominant, and the growth uh, is going to come from international markets. So really, even before my ownership of the Jaguars, the NFL was doing a lot of heavy lifting and involved in a lot of different uh, ways of uh, getting the content and the games internationalized, and we're just continuing that journey right now. And I mentioned that you own the Fulham Football Club, which gives you a pretty unique read on Britain. What's your take on uh, what's happening over there? What impact have you seen from the uncertainty over Brexit? And what preparations, more specifically, are you making for the club? Well, uh, I think, you know, this, uh, frankly, my personal opinion, I think is that this will be much ado about nothing because it's been going on for so long. Um, you know, just recently, uh, we opened up a new factory for auto parts in Luton to supply uh, Peugeot uh, over there. So I think there might be some disruption uh, when it happens, but I think it'll be minimal. Uh, I mean, I was there last week for Americans. Uh, you know, we don't even get the passport stamped, and, uh, you know, you can go through uh, a very quick uh, process uh, of random checks even if, on immigration now, so if you file the proper form. So uh, from my viewpoint, I think it'll be very minimal uh, disruption. And finally, we wrapped things up with a look at what happened in Turkey this week. After launching an offensive into northeastern Syria with the U.S. on the sidelines, Turkey agreed to a brief ceasefire on Thursday. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence announced the agreement after more than five hours of talks with President Erdogan. With the implementation of the ceasefire, uh, the United States will not impose any further sanctions uh, on Turkey. And once a permanent ceasefire is in effect, uh, the president has agreed to withdraw the economic sanctions that were imposed. 
The pause in military operations was supposed to begin immediately and last five days to allow the Kurds to retreat. But the conflicting interpretations of the deal were already being tested on Friday morning with continued skirmishes. We spoke about it and the impact on emerging markets with Gavin Serkin, the founder and managing editor of New Markets Media and Intelligence. Gavin is also the author of Frontier, Exploring the Top 10 Emerging Markets of Tomorrow, which was published by Bloomberg. We started by asking him how much teeth the U.S. sanctions really had. Yeah, I mean, there was no teeth. There was a big set of gums, really. You know, there, there, there was no bite in it. There was um, tariffs on steel. Turkey exports very little steel to the U.S. these days. Um, it was sanctions against some named individuals, but these aren't the kind of sanctions that we're seeing against Iran, for example, or, or even Russia. You know, these are very light sanctions. And so it was more about, I think, the diplomatic effort of Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo going down to Ankara and, and sorting this one out. Are you worried at all about some of the talk, at least among senators, that they could pass another bill that would actually maybe have a little bit more bite? There was talk about restricting uh, purchases of Turkish sovereign debt uh, by U.S. people. No, I think it needs that because, um, you know, if you listen to what the foreign secretary in Turkey has said today, he said, you know, Mike Pence has said this is a ceasefire. Turkey's foreign minister says this is not a ceasefire. This is a temporary pause to allow um, the, to, to allow cessation to, for, you know, who they call the terrorists to, to come out of the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, Turkey is not seeing this at the moment as permanent. So the U.S., I think, in order to create a permanent ceasefire, does need to ratchet this up. Well, is it plausible that even if it's not Trump's inclination that Congress could further force his hand, imp- and, uh, which would result in sanctions that actually would have some bite? Yeah, I think that um, sanctions can have bite, but, you know, really, if you look at the track record of sanctions, you take Russia, you know, you you look at Russia, we've had sanctions for more than five years, both from the US and from Europe. Russia's economy isn't going gangbusters, but it's surviving. It's surviving quite nicely. You know, you look at emerging market uh, returns this year, Russia is actually the number two performer year to date in the equity markets. And that reflects um, quite a solid economy that's bumping along at one and a half percent growth or something like that. Um, And, you know, kind of what sanctions do, the, the kind of silver lining of sanctions is that it actually forces economies quite often to look inwards you know, and that's been the case of Russia to actually, you know, address uh, internally what they can do with with the economy. Gavin, therefore, how how systemic has the issue with Turkey, with the Middle East intentions, actually really been? Particularly for the clients that you're speaking, the people who want to understand investing in frontier markets, emerging markets, does it put people off? But everyone's been underweight Turkey, so I think you know what we'll see tomorrow is a is a tremendous uh, jump in Turkish assets and I think by extension emerging markets because you know we're on this run at the moment uh, a seventh day of gains with the longest rally that we've seen since April and you know emerging markets that really are coming back from quite a low base so you know I think that we will see this as as another positive signal you know we've had uh, you know the the US economy signaling that okay the Fed may may cut rates after all at some point again. Um, we've seen uh, the, the positive news on on the, the trade war, you know, perhaps leading to some kind of settlement. Uh, and and we've, we've seen
seen other noises that have been, you know, from the Brexit side even, you know, which mm. is which is kind of a funny one because, you know, we're, we're seeing news that's more towards Brexit actually happening, but yet that's seen as a positive sign for the market. So, you know, from an emerging markets perspective, you know, this is increasingly risk back on. Hmm. But I feel like that risk back on has been there for a while. I mean, emerging market investors have sort of wanted to be positive pretty much all year long. It's still been a little bit of a wait. I mean, they've gotten some rewards, as you mentioned, in Russia, maybe Brazil, you can throw in there as well. But when you try to time this, it's always sort of precarious because you're dealing with less data points about the economic factors and more about some of these political issues. When you look at the emerging markets as a whole, not just what's going on in Turkey, but really across uh, th that whole sort of sector, do you think that the weight at this point, if you're not already in, the weight is sort of worth it? I think the weight has been worth it because mm -hmm. you're coming into a situation where, you know, for, yes, emerging market investors want to get back in. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think that reflects a global appetite. But the the stars haven't been aligned you know you've had you have had this backdrop of weakening growth you know for whether it's china or whether it's india or whether you're looking at the situation in latin america from brazil to argentina you know there's been specific points that have been going wrong in the markets but also the the macro picture hasn't 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 been where it needs to be right now you've had a few signals of positivity and so all of those investors that have been waiting on the sidelines are ready to deploy how long that lasts who knows and that's it for what you missed this week if you like the show make sure to subscribe and rate us at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.